This show is sponsored in part by Fortinet and the FortiGate 40F Firewall, part of the Fortinet Security Fabric for Retail, providing retailers with confidence on their digital transformation journey via industry-leading network, security, and management solutions. Learn more on how Fortinet helps retailers secure their branch, data center, and multi-cloud environments. For more information, go to fortinet.com forward slash retail. That's fortinet.com forward slash retail. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for flying with us. On our final approach, please make sure your seat bags and trays are in their upright and locked positions, and any carry-on bags are stored on the floor beneath you. We should be on the ground shortly. You are listening to the Tech Chef Podcast, episode number lucky 13, August 25th, 2020. We seem to be encountering some technical difficulties. <laughs> well, ain't that the darndest thing? Off-premise strategy, business continuity. How about a taste test of restaurant technology? Drive through or curbside, mobile apps or AI. It's all on the menu, cooking up for the day. It's a recipe for success. You're in good hands with the tech chef. Make a plan to be your best. Strategize with the tech chef. Welcome, everybody. This is your host, Skip Kimple, and this is another edition of The Tech Chef, the restaurant and hospitality weekly show you're craving to listen to. I know you are. Did you catch last week's show where we talked to Charlie Gazetta from BurgerFi? Well, if not, I urge you to go listen to it now. It has had a record number of downloads and comments, so it will be worth your time. I had announced last week that we had a surprise episode today. I'm going to let the cat out of the bag a little bit here to tell you that I will be talking to White Castle about their amazing technology and a very big announcement from them. However, while the show has been recorded, we are still waiting for approval to release that show, so it is under wraps until further notice. Maybe next Tuesday. Keep your fingers crossed. Today, we have a much-needed episode on digital ADA compliancy. Have you received a notification that you're being sued for a lack of website compliancy? Well, if not, don't pretend it's not going to happen to you. They just haven't found their way to your business website yet. I have two guests on today's episode, J.C. Caps, attorney at law for Rumberger & Kirk, and Anne Salee from DigiPro Media. First, we're going to be talking about the legal implications of such a lawsuit, and then we're going to talk to a company that can provide a solution for you to mitigate the situation. Problem, solution, solved. As a disclaimer, the views and opinions of today's guest are just that. The tech chef is not responsible for any action you take or do not take based upon the guests on today's show. If you find yourself in a lawsuit or you're trying to mitigate your own digital ADA compliancy situation, please contact your own legal counsel. Starting off today's episode, we have JC Caps, who is an experienced civil litigator and legal advisor for the retail and hospitality sector. JC is conversant in issues arising from data and security breaches, the ensuing claims, and regulatory investigations. From the offices of Rumberger & Kirk, JC is going to give us some legal insight about digital ADA compliancy from his side of the business. JC, thank you very much for joining me today. I want to dig right into the fact that 
ADA compliancy lawsuits and the um, effect it's having on the industry. So I'm a business, I'm a restaurant, and all of a sudden in the mail, I get this letter that says, you've been sued um, due to ADA compliancy on your website. First of all, is this legitimate and how is it affecting the industry? Well, Skip, thanks for having me on, number one. Congratulations on this great podcast. Um, and, you know, right to the point, it is legit, um, unfortunately. Um, it is a uh, really a developing industry that we're seeing. We're seeing a lot of action on the ADA website front. Um, letters are less common than just outright having a process server serve you or if you have a registered agent, getting service on your registered agent. And, um, you know, right out of the bat, you want to look over the complaint. You'll understand what it is pretty quickly because it's not a mystery when you'll see ADA website compliance issues. Uh, they scream loudly and clearly from the pleading that you're served with. Then next step, if you have counsel that you work with, it would be a good idea to refer that over to counsel right away to find out a little bit more in terms of counsel's experience with the issues and begin to dig in because these lawsuits are pervasive. We're seeing them um, across most states, though there are hot states uh, that seem to really lead the, lead the path in ADA website litigation. Now, JC, are they really looking to uh, intimidate and force people into a settlement, or do they truly care about the outcome of this? Well, the truth is, Skip, that um, and mostly these are uh, sue-and-settle type cases. Uh, analogous, you know, for anyone that's listening that's got some experience with the actual physical barriers, ADA website litigation that was very prevalent, um, you know, up through the, you know, probably as, as recently as about three to five years ago, and then there's been kind of a tamping down of that litigation. The general interest similar, similarly is to just get to a resolution that involves an attorney's fee and get it settled. There is um, little, if any, actual traction to uh, to what's going on in terms of a meaningful intent behind it. You will see um, recidivist plaintiffs named in these lawsuits. So uh, the interesting backgrounds on a number of these people that are filing the suits. But what you won't see that you would hope to see if these were suits that were righteous and for a cause is a variety of people bringing these suits because they're born out of a, a real need for accessibility. But instead, um, what you're seeing is, is the vast majority of these lawsuits have actually been filed by uh, 10 law firms. Um, I believe the last data set, which is as good as um, the first part of this year, um, revealed that 82% of these lawsuits are being filed by 10 law firms. Wow. Um, and in, in and of itself, that kind of screams, you know, of, of what's going on here. And uh, again, it kind of harkens back to, and it's really not dissimilar other than the medium we're talking about. Um, it's not dissimilar from the very prevalent ADA accessibility cases that, you know, were the subject of so many investigative articles about who exactly is bringing these cases. And there was a very popular, well-known uh, 60 Minutes episode that was run that was actually filmed here in, in South Florida um, that exposed what exactly was going on. And there they called it you know, drive, you know, drive-by lawsuits, I think. I, I may be butchering the name, and I apologize because drive-by brings up implications I don't mean to. But on the other hand, in the legal industry, haha. 
um, in terms of the, you know, the nature of the filing. And here, I think the irony with the ADA website cases is, uh, you know, if you take out that driving by the location element, now you can literally have um, individuals who are, um, I guess, instigating is the best word I could come up with, but I'm not sure that it's a fair characterization. They're instigating from home. You can sit in your, your pajamas with a coffee cup from the comfort of, of a desk and a, and a computer or maybe even a device of some other type and, uh, and look for opportunities to bring lawsuits against companies. Now, you know, I understand them going after the big brands out there because there's multiple lawsuits. It's probably per location, I'm, I'm assuming they go after. But there's a slew of people that I've been contacted by asking me questions. They're small-time companies. You know, they're very small operations. And I, I'm sure they're sitting there thinking, why are they going after me? And I, I, we've heard that a lot. Uh, and I think it's a very fair question. And the answer isn't always readily apparent. Uh, and I think it turns on, to some extent, the sectors that are being sued. A lot of the small operations that we see subject to these lawsuits tend to be in uh, the, the hospitality side. So small hotels, B&Bs, they're very much the target of this type of litigation. Um, and there's a, there's a kicker to that, which has to do with the, the physical accessibility element. So there you can go from the medium of the website and whether the website is accessible and really transfer into the actual nature of the accessibility options that are being offered online to describe accessible rooms. Um, so there was a, an incentive that was statutorily based to try to go after these, these companies. And I have to say that I think the secondary point is larger organizations are going to have the resources to potentially put up a fight. Larger organizations are also going to take steps to remediate. But smaller organizations, they don't have that in the budget. Businesses, mom and pop businesses, they can't afford to do that necessarily. And certainly a number of the companies that we've talked with have expressed a concern of how can we do this? How can we fix this? So that when you get back to that point I made just a short while ago about the, um, you know, the basically sue and settle mentality that is pervasive with this litigation that dates back to its origins um, in Pennsylvania, um, you see a pattern emerging, a clear picture emerging that there are targets of which the the objective is not necessarily to make any type of a sustained change to the organization itself, while the goal is very noble, and I don't want to lose sight of that, but but the actual means by which this is being done and the um, recidivist lawyers that are filing these suits don't really um, put forth that actual picture of we're trying to um, right or wrong. Now, we started the conversation talking about websites, but are they also going after things like apps or any other aspect of the digital presence of the company? So we were early, I'm, I'm going to give you a bit of a, a, a history on this one. We were early into um, this area uh, when a partner of mine um, named Nicole Smith, who, who does a lot of work in this area, is fantastic, um, had come across some articles kind of touching on the subject very early um, you know, I'd say early generation of these, this type of litigation. And we started studying the cases. And um, actually, some, some folks I went to law school were also early adopters of this type of litigation. However, they were on the other side. But what was interesting is since I knew them, we started talking to them, trying to find out, you know, why are you doing this? What's going on here? And the discussion we always had was, we believed firmly this was going to grow and include apps. 
And uh, there's very little, very little doubt in our mind. And so years ago, and there's, there's still um, actually webinars on YouTube that you could see, we were talking about our belief that this was 100% going to get extended to apps. And the answer is yes. The Robles versus Domino's Pizza Ninth Circuit opinion made it very clear. And, and if you want to get an interpretation on that, there are many of them, but we've written some of them as well, that there is a, a intent and a plan to apply the accessibility issues to apps. And the rationale behind it, to, to kind of keep it in, in simple terms, it's a lengthy opinion um, and I don't want to oversimplify it, but it's really the connectedness of the app to physical space. And so when the court is looking at this, trying to, to assess the accessibility issues, the hook to evaluate the app is, is it interconnected with the business and the business's physical space? And that court went on um, a, a fairly lengthy discussion explaining that maybe not true of all apps, but the app in question, the Domino's app, yes, it was connected to the physical space. There was a means of tying into the actual restaurants themselves, the Domino's locations, such that it is integrated with the business. And there's really two schools on, in terms of the division of how the courts are looking at websites versus, you know, websites connected with a nexus to physical space versus not. And I don't want to digress too far into that point. But to answer the question of, yes, the courts are looking at that, and yes, they've concluded it does, and that the same accessibility standards, even though they're imperfect um, through you know, the WCAG set, if you're familiar with it, um, needs to be extended to the app space. And that, in turn, has opened up a whole new um, front, I'll call it, of litigation where now the apps are becoming the focus because I think it was um, fairly quickly that we saw recidivist lawsuits. <laughs> so the same organization that we would represent in a suit on accessibility would within short time, within a short time be sued again and again. Um, and um, that was very confounding and obviously incredibly frustrating for us and for our clients. But the app world opens up a whole new uh, realm of possibilities for this type of litigation. And what was, I think, probably very intriguing for the other side, the plaintiffs that are filing these suits, was that the guidance was um, going to be very hard to match up with for accessibility purposes. Now, there's been work done on that by the World Wide Web Consortium. And so guidance has emerged, but um, it, when there's an absence of guidance, just like there is with the with the well, there's more guidance today. But just like there was with the websites when we started in on this project, and still a willingness of the courts to say yes, but we are going to require accessibility, that creates somewhat of um, it's not really a perfect storm. That's a bad word, but it, it creates an opening to pursue cases like this. And um, and kind of makes it somewhat hard, right, to uh, ward off those subsequent lawsuits. So apps, new world, website, um, I, I don't want to say that it's it's old <laughs> and passe already, still going strong, still plenty of opportunities there. Apps are a new horizon and a very pervasive one, right? Yes, and I, I certainly I want to make it very clear. Obviously, there is a need for accessibility, and those that that actually need this capability of 
of living their life. I completely understand. However, what you described and the amount of, of law firms that are representing such a large amount of clients, I, I it's very, I don't know, it, it feels really bad. Is there a way as an industry we can fight back against this? Well, there, there, there is industry-wise um, uh, ongoing efforts that I, I've learned about that uh, target legislation, target trying to get actual formal guidance in place. But to this point, um, it has not really materialized. So that is a, a, a unified front approach that we strongly support and would love to see. Unfortunately, whether it's um, climate timing um, currently, um, right now, uh, in the middle of uh, the pandemic, um, that those initiatives are, are really not in, in any meaningful motion. It felt like there was some momentum about a year ago, but it didn't really pan out and land. So um, in, in that vacuum, um, certainly industry associations can be powerful sources to go to for both information and to, you know, I would say maybe vent your spleen and try to get attention and try to use the power of numbers to talk um, to legislators to try to, to get a change that's a sustained, meaningful one. Because right now, again, I want to go back to, without being repetitive, in a vacuum, which is what you have at the moment, courts are left to individual decision-making, and they are generally operating based on precedent. And the precedent has been to extend the WCAG guidelines and say that those are the guidelines that are the ones that um, websites, if we're focusing on that, are um, required to hit. And um, that really, can, again, puts you back into that individual fight mold that you don't want to be in. The secondary issue is um, to be ready for this to have a plan in place, to have an accessibility statement on the website, to be able to obviously have an individual who wants to know about accessibility be redirected, also to have an opportunity for them to be able, someone who wants and needs accessibility, to be able to confer with somebody, talk to somebody you know, in real time. These are, are some small steps. And then once you've been sued, if you've undertaken the path of accessibility, to continue to work on that and demonstrate that you're moving forward. So that's a little bit narrower, of course, than, than the broad, is there something we can do as an industry? Um, but in the, in the absence of being able to give you a good, broad answer that says, yes, you can put all your efforts in this direction or that bucket, then the individual response is what you're left with right now. So hopefully anybody listening to the show uh, that has not uh, been served papers or whatever yet, um, hopefully they're listening to you and they're take, they're going to take proactive measures to make sure that they're doing the right things to make sure their site is accessible. Now, let's say you're out there and you're listening to the show because you saw the title of it, you did a Google search and this popped up. What can you tell people? So they've just received notice that they're being sued. What is the first thing that they should be doing? Well, you know, it sounds self-promotional when a lawyer says call a lawyer. <laughs> and there's, it seems like an inescapable circle or cycle that you get stuck in when you say that because, of course, the person making the suggestion, contact a lawyer and uh, find out about what's going on, especially, of course, if you're unfamiliar with this. You know, that's the first step. And, and just because you call a lawyer and consult doesn't mean you have to hire a lawyer. 
Uh, it's important for anyone who's in the legal services, uh, in the market for legal services, to be a discriminating purchaser of those legal services and to select intelligently and to get information. But acquire information. Preliminarily, just from a procedural standpoint, these cases are brought in federal court. Federal court requirements are very rigid. Deadlines are very important. And it is not ever worth uh, testing fate to see if you could just ignore the lawsuit and it'll go away. That's not going to happen, which is why at a preliminary level, you've got to get in contact with a lawyer to make sure your legal rights are preserved. Many people will call the lawyer on the complaint, <laughs> the suing, you know, the, the suit paper um, to talk with them. It is important to understand that the opposing lawyer owes you no obligation and is not acting in your best interests. So As you, a, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, you know, you and I have, have sat on panels together specifically about this, um, about this subject. And if somebody wants to really reach out to you or they have any questions or need representation, um, how can they actually reach out to you? Well, they can, can certainly email me, and I'm glad to give my uh, email address, which is J-K-A-P, like Peter S, at Rumberger, that's R-U-M-B-E-R-G-E-R.com. Our website is called Rumberger Kirk, and you can find that very easily. Yes, it's accessible. Um, it's RumbergerKirk.com. <laughs> Yeah, you know, you better have that, right? Exactly. Um, you're going to say you're going to talk tough. You better be able to walk it too. So we do, <laughs> and that is a that's a way to to get to to me and um, and ask any questions that you have. We've had um, so many conversations with people about this area, and um, we're happy to offer you know any guidance that we can. The preliminaries, talk through these issues with people. Um, and you can you can certainly go online and find information. There's no shortage of that. But again, that information is not going to be a good substitute for talking to a lawyer, particularly when the procedural time clock is ticking. JC, thanks so much for joining us today and sharing your knowledge. Uh, very much appreciated. And certainly, if anybody's in the circumstance, I'm I'm sure this is uh, great information from them and or for them and fresh, you know, a fresh perspective on what's going on out there and maybe how to, how to take those first steps. And coming up next, we actually have a company that we're going to be talking to in regards to how to potentially, um, um, mitigate your, your website to figure out how to fix these problems. So JC, thanks once again. Skip, I, I enjoyed it. Thanks so much for the time. Up next, after this short break, we are going to talk about the solution and how to make sure your website is compliant. Processing more than 7 million jobs a month for customers in 44 countries, Cobalt Iron delivers modern enterprise-grade data backup for growing businesses. With built-in cybersecurity and ransomware protection, Cobalt Iron's award-winning backup is your last line of defense for saving and protecting your precious data. For more information, visit skipkimple.com forward slash cobalt. That's skipkimple.com forward slash cobalt. Next up, we have Anne Salee, Senior Relationship Manager from DigiPro Media. Anne has a diverse and successful experience in business, legal, government, and non-governmental organizations. As a mission-focused leader with an understanding of long-range and strategic planning to reach goals, she is able to lead and collaborate effectively. Her company, DigiPro Media, offers a digital platform as a service to provide high-quality work 
through their focus on ADA web accessibility. Joining me now, I have Anne Salee from DigiPro. Anne, thank you for so much for joining me here today. Good morning. I'd like to talk to you about, uh, we just had a discussion in regards to, you know, what the legal implications are in regards to these ADA compliancy lawsuits. And I wanted to bring you on the show to talk about the solution and how to solve for the problem once you realize that you do have a problem. So I want to get right into it. Maybe you can talk a little bit about what on a website will actually cause these lawsuits to occur? There are a a number of different things, but the real obvious ones are if you think about someone who can't see, can't hear, or can't use a mouse, think about all of those things that that would impact when you're using a website. You can't click to different parts of the screen. You don't know what a picture shows you. And you can't hear what someone's saying if there's video. So there are back, there is background coding on a website that describes a picture called alt text. And for it's been there for years. People have generally ignored it. But when a blind person or a visually disabled person uses a website, they use a screen reader that reads that background coding out. And when they hit a picture, they would like it to say, picture of a couple sitting at the beach eating hamburgers and french fries instead of 564321.jpg, which would be the file name. Um, So that's a simple fix that you can do. And you can do that on your social media. You can do that on your website so that someone who's visually disabled knows what you're trying to portray when you have a picture. If you're using color contrast, that would impact someone who's colorblind. Uh, If someone is hearing impaired, it's very difficult for them to know what someone is saying in the video if there are no captions across the bottom of a picture. Um, If someone can't mouse through or click through easily or doesn't know where those buttons are or what they say, when they go through the, the screen by tabbing, they tab to a button and it says button. That doesn't tell them what the button does. The coding on the background should say, click here to go to marketing video or whatever it is that it goes to. So it's it's background description that's fairly easy for your web manager to update. Um, But, you know, there are a number of different issues, but they all impact how someone accesses your product or your service on the web. Now, this probably goes outside the scope of what what you can tell me about or what you do as from your company perspective, but I know it is a big question that comes my way in regards to, okay, you've done all the remediation on, on your website, but what about external websites, like it, if your site jumps out to an online ordering system or a loyalty program, are you responsible for those third parties as well? Legally, because your website directs them to that site, you are responsible for sending them there. Therefore, technically, you're responsible for their experience when you send them out. So uh, it has been has been held in the courts, and this is legal, and, and hopefully JC covered that. Um, but legally, you can be held responsible for whatever you direct someone to. So there are a couple of different ways to handle it. You can put a statement in there that says, you know, we are not, you know, we don't manage what's on this site. 
Um, but none of those things get you around your responsibility. Okay, one more really quick bizarre question that just popped in my head. So I was posting something on LinkedIn the other day that had a picture, and I know there's an option to add alt text to to the picture. It, it's good to do from a uh, from a perspective of helping others being able to navigate through your content. Is it required? Is somebody going to come back after me because I posted something on LinkedIn without a alt tag on my on my picture? Seen that come back as a legal issue yet? But I had a real eye-opener, and and I I don't mean to be facetious. We have a software engineer who is visually disabled. Um, We are also Facebook friends. I was posting something about something I cooked at home, and she emailed me and said, if you put the alt text on your pictures, I could see what you were talking about. Wow. And that was was a real wake-up call for me. Yeah, I, I don't think we think about it in the social media aspect. We're always concentrating so much on the on the website of things that, uh, once again, that becomes part of your culture and how you think about things rather than just doing it because you need to do it. And all of those social media um, organizations have accessibility options in the background. Some of them are easier to find than others. But the alt text on pictures is a really easy one. Even on YouTube, you can click and close caption your videos when you post a video on YouTube. So if you look for it, it's there. So let's say company XYZ has just been served papers that they have this lawsuit pending. Obviously, they're going to contact their lawyer first. But what what needs to be done from from the website perspective? Does it need to be scanned for ADA compliancy and then remediated? I mean, how does that process work? Um, You contact your attorney. Hopefully your attorney is familiar with someone who can scan and remediate your website. Um, They run a scan on the website that produces a report. And that report might say you have 33,982 errors, which is really a frightening number. Uh, And I've seen some that have many more errors than that. That's counting every single image, every single PDF every single non-captioned video, every color contrast, et cetera. So you run the scan, you get with the attorney and discuss what the best solution for your particular site is. It can be as simple as um, putting a a coding on the top of the screen so that when someone comes on the screen reader, it clicks over to a parallel website that is totally text-based and therefore the screen reader can use it. And the cool thing about that is the more text-based the background coding on your website is, the better your search engine optimization is. And so it's not just a, you should do this because it's the right thing to do, but you should also consider doing this because it improves your website. As people use voice searches more and more, Alexa, Siri, hey, Google, you know, whatever you're using, that's all text-based. And the more text-friendly the coding on the back of your website is, the easier those voice searches and the screen readers are going to be able to find you. It actually promotes your SEO. It puts you up higher. It improves your Google Analytics. So there are good business reasons to make your website more accessible. You can start out with that parallel website and the coding. Um, that will buy you 12 months or so. You put a little accessibility statement on the bottom of your website that says, we are aware of this, we're addressing it, 
We're researching the best solution. We pledge to fix our website. Some companies just stop there. And 12 months from now, that plaintiff's attorney who's hired the testers is going to come back to you and say, uh, <clears throat> a year ago, you were aware of this. You haven't done anything in the year. So we're going to sue you again. And that can happen. Just because you're sued once doesn't mean that's the end of it. What you need to do then is take that year and decide what the best way to make your site totally as accessible as possible. Uh, you can work with someone who can help your web developer remediate every aspect of your website, or you can totally future-proof your website and build a new fully accessible website. So there are different levels of, of detail that go into that, and there are different levels of cost involved. It generally is more expensive to make a website accessible than it is to recreate the website in an accessible format. Once you've remediated all those changes, you've, you've hired the company to do that. Obviously, it needs to be scanned again, correct? Mm -hmm. Correct. You should have, and, and one of the things that we do is we recommend a plan. You have an attorney, you have an accessibility expert that you can call on when you need them, but you also have a review plan in place in your business that on a regular basis, you review and scan your website uh, for accessibility issues. Because every time you post something new on your website, that potentially impacts your accessibility. If you've got you know, a, a couple of different people who all have access to the website and somebody mistakenly, you know, inadvertently puts a picture on there that doesn't have the alt text on the back, it only takes one item for your website to be out of compliance. And it's not percentages. It's not, you know, you're allowed to have 20% of your website inaccessible before you get in trouble. Uh, you know, according to the ADA rules, you're a, a disabled or a differently abled person needs to be able to have the same experience on your website as a fully abled and fully sighted person would have. So uh, it's important to have that plan in place and rescan your website once a month, once a quarter, once a year, and whatever uh, basis your number of changes on your website would indicate. Now, Anne, I didn't bring you on the show just to talk about this. Obviously, your company does this. So maybe you can tell me a little bit about DigiPro and how you particularly can solve for this problem. We do. And um, I will also tell you, I came to DigiPro as a client. They did a website for me for an association I ran. Uh, so I was very familiar with the process from a customer point of view. They took our existing website and created a brand new, fully accessible website. And the, the analytics were much higher than they had been before. We can do the scans. We build the parallel websites. But the really unique thing about DigiPro is that we have a proprietary uh, interface that makes your website fully accessible. If you hire us to build your website, it's put into our DigiPro interface and it essentially doesn't let you post something that's not accessible. Uh, if you're a techie like some of us are, there's always a way to get around things, but it tells you if you're posting a picture without putting the alt text in. It tells you if your color contrast is off. It tells you if the buttons aren't properly labeled. And it records all of those messages in the background 
so that should you ever be contacted by that attorney with a demand letter or heaven forbid a lawsuit, uh, they can look at, you can hold that up hopefully and say, see, we've corrected all of these errors. These popped up, we corrected them. You know, you may have gotten a screenshot when someone was in the middle of doing something, but that was immediately corrected. So um, we work primarily with the hospitality industry, but we also do a lot of business with associations, with chambers of commerce, um, with health businesses. Uh, and we, we do this across the country and in fact, across the world. We have clients in London and clients in Australia. Uh, and it's kind of a unique product because it doesn't just cure the accessibility of your website. It also improves your visibility to abled and differently abled people. Uh, so it, it future-proofs your website so that it is more accessible to voice search as well as to people with whatever issue they might have uh, using the internet and being able to access your goods and services. Oh, that's amazing. So is it easy for somebody to, to start with your company? I mean, what is the process if they already have a website? Uh, how, do get, how do they get started with you? If they already have a website, um, the first thing we do is to put that accessibility plan on their website, to put the, the link up in the top so screen reader finds it, to go through and correct the, the big glaring errors and to put that accessibility statement on the bottom. With that, they can just live with that on the parallel website for you know six months, 12 months. Within six months, if they decide to upgrade to a new website, they're protected from the minute that plan is put on there. And it only takes maybe 48 hours max to put the plan on and build a parallel website. That part of it's a very quick process and it's fairly inexpensive. If you upgrade to a new website within six months, all that you have spent on your common, it's called common access, on your common access plan is credited towards your new website. Your new website is built. Um, we've got a series of frameworks that we can build a website pretty quickly if it's not a custom design. If it's custom, obviously we've got to work with developers and, and we've done some pretty unique um, revisions and upgrades to websites, things that we never thought we could do. But we have an amazing team on board who can do things that people say are impossible. So I, I found the website very easy to use when I was a client. Uh, I was not internet knowledgeable at the time that they built a new website for us. And it was very easy for me to go in and post my new information and add members and put in new pictures and know that I was protected because it always called for my alt text. It always reminded me if I didn't label a button. Um, and we've got a, a team that will help you if, if you need, if you get stuck, you put in a support ticket and within 24 hours, you've got somebody on it fixing it um, and you go forward and, and you've got a great website that you know is going to be accessible to anyone who wants to look at it. That's great. And I have a feeling many listeners right now are going to want to know more about how to get in touch with you and uh, explore the opportunities with you. So how do they do that? Um, the website is digipromedia.com, spelled out all one word, just like it sounds, D-I-G-I-P-R-O-M-E-D-I-A. Uh, they can always call me directly. 
My number is 407-777-4308, or they can email me at ann at digipromedia.com. I'm on all your social media. I'm on Skype. Any way you need to reach me, I'm on WhatsApp. My last name is spelled with two L's and two E's, S-A-L-L-E-E. You can find me pretty much anywhere. Okay. I think I think if they want to, they definitely will be able to find you. Thank you so much for joining me today, Anne. I really do appreciate you and your company for being part of the solution and really keeping in mind accessibility for the public. Thank you, Skip, for the opportunity. Well, there you go. All the information you need to understand and fix your problem with digital ADA compliancy. Now, I have to reiterate from the top of the show, the guest opinions on this show are just that. Neither myself nor the Tech Chef podcast has any legal responsibility in your circumstance or outcome based upon information you learned on this show. Please immediately contact your own legal counsel in the event you find yourself involved in a lawsuit for digital ADA compliancy. Now, I'm still waiting to hear from you for our new contest, and that is the oddest thing that you ever have eaten. All you need to do is call the number 954-302-0851. That's 954-302-0851. And leave a one to two minute long message and you're going to be entered for a chance to win a $50 Amazon gift card that we're going to give away in September. Remember, you can't win if you don't leave us a voice comment. Now you can also go to skipkimple.com and on the right hand side, there's a little icon that says send a voicemail. Record your comment right there in the browser. Easy peasy. And Fortinet has done it again. We had a very successful contest last month where we gave two winners a Fortinet summer prize package giveaway. Well, this month we are going to be giving away a firewall. Really? And that's because of all of you. You commented and said, hey, it's a firewall company. Why aren't they giving away a firewall? Well, I went back to Fortinet and guess what? They're giving us a firewall. It is a Fortinet 40D and one year's worth of service valued at over $1,200. Now we're going to be kicking off this contest later this week. So you're going to have to watch social media to find out when and how to enter into this contest. We're going to be running it through September 19th. So you have plenty of time to enter. But the trick is every single day you can enter again and again and again. And it gives you multiple opportunities to actually win this prize package. And if you don't want to miss a beat or any episodes of the podcast, I strongly suggest that you subscribe to our show, either on Apple iTunes, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Google, pretty much any place you get your podcast feeds, you can find the Tech Chef there. And of course, please leave a rating and a review. This is the only thing that I ask all of you as it helps me get ranked higher so that more people are aware of the show. So if there's one way to pay me back for this content I provide, that's it. This week is a double header. And while it has nothing to do with technology, Thursday, I'm going to be talking to NFL Super Bowl champion Fred Stokes, who now owns and operates Fred Stokes Sausage. We'll be chatting quite a bit about his experience in the NFL, as I have a very curious mind about that, as well as what brought him to where he is today in the food industry. We're also going to have a pretty darn emotional conversation about his foundation, Lint Brother. So you want to make sure that you tune in and listen to that episode. This is a very inspirational show, and you're going to want to end your week on this on a very positive note. 
And of course, next Tuesday, a week from today, I'm hoping to be able to share with you the White Castle episode that we recorded. And if not, you know what? It doesn't matter. I have many other shows in the can ready for your listening pleasure that are just as impactful. However, when I release this White Castle episode, you're not going to want to miss that because it's it's pretty cool on the technology side. And I am very honored to be able to spread the news about it. Well, that is it for today. And I hope you enjoyed the episode. And until we talk again, stay safe, stay healthy, and stay hungry, my friends. Stay hungry, my friends.